Welcome to Leadership Letters, the brand new podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. Coming up in this episode. We don't give young people and children enough credit. Let's find an answer, let's get it done or crack on. But really, being able to hold that space, you might well find a much better quality of decision, not feel like as the leader, you have to go in and rescue. What went through my head was this really strong image of a a ship in a storm. Language describing young people's futures as lost or failed serves only to disempower. I think some of that is about protecting a personal brand. I'm Lizzie Bentley-Bowers. Welcome to episode four of the Leadership Letters podcast on a rainy January day here in the UK, as we work at getting our collective heads around another national lockdown and navigating our way forward in such a challenging backdrop of loss and uncertainty. And this has made the reasons why we began this podcast even more important. Leadership is everywhere. And more than ever, we need leaders who are able to bring that most useful combination to the people and organisations they are leading of direction, compassion, confidence and inspiration. So this podcast is about offering resources to leaders. It's about a community for leaders too. It can be isolating to be the person carrying ultimate responsibility for people whose working and personal lives are impacted by your leadership and your decisions and of the way you create the conditions for them to work in. So we hope leaders will not only find ideas, tools and resources here, especially later on in our leadership lowdown, but that you'll find some reassurance too, and some appreciation and some inspiration. And that brings me to our leadership letters themselves. As I chew over all things leadership with our guests, we'll also hear them share a letter that they have written to a leader. And we'll use that as a jumping off point for more leadership talk. So let's get on and introduce our guest today. She's a graduate of Liverpool John Moores University and a postgraduate of Leicester University and an MBA qualified director. She was a youth worker for over 15 years in the northwest of England. And for the past nine years, she's been working at national charity Young Enterprise, helping teenagers get the skills, knowledge and confidence they need for the world of work. For the past year or so, she's been in charge of Young Enterprise as Chief Executive. And given that I can't tell you how strongly I feel about the importance of leaders having our young and future generations in mind, not to mention heart in their decision-making and thinking, I'm delighted to welcome Sharon Davis to Leadership Letters. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, Lizzie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So can we jump on in, as I always do, with some early memories of leadership? What were your first experiences of leadership and how do they shape the way that you lead today um it's an interesting question I guess my my very first experiences of leadership might be uh, when I was in primary school uh, and I was in a very small primary school probably only kind of 30 or 40 in the whole school it was a rural primary school so which was kind of made up of three classes the little middle and big class uh, and uh, everybody was aged between like kind of five and 11 and you're a split across the little middle and big class and I remember being in the big class being in the final year I remember the head teacher telling me to pick my feet up um, when I was walking and I remember her sitting me down and just talking to me really about the importance of how you hold yourself and how you hold yourself in the world um, because it's really about your presence in the world not necessarily what anybody else thinks it's what you think and how you feel and how you portray yourself in the world and that was my first 
experience really and that kind of holding yourself in a different way and not kind of slouching your feet was a small thing but it was a big thing um and it's it was I guess my first experience and I never it's never left me really I still kind of slouch my feet but it was a very it was a lovely intervention I do think there's something about those physical cues Mm. and and like you say some of them can go way back for us but what are the physical things that we're doing that tell us that we are either being perhaps a little reluctant or bringing our whole selves to the party so what what do you notice now then physically and what if anything do you change I think your breathing really helps doesn't it it's kind of your 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 kind of breath and I guess how you hold yourself that whole thing about having feeling quite grounded and uh, if you're about to have a difficult conversation or if you're about to kind of enter something that you're unsure about about having just I guess you're both your feet planted and even if you're sitting down just trying to feel a little bit more centered in the world Uh, and I I guess yeah and I guess I I don't always do it but um, you know, Mrs. Scott was her name when I was about 11. You know, she, she, she was all about kind of placing value in yourself um, and that, that kind of like, you know, dragging your feet or, or scuffing your feet was, it's about placing value in yourself. And I think children and young people can access that kind of information at a, at a very early age and, and apply it. And I, and I think sometimes we, we don't give young people and children enough credit in terms of being able to apply some of those cues. So it was it was great for me and that young enterprise in my experience of it feels like it's about exactly that it's about young people expanding their idea of how they can place value in themselves and what they can contribute and what perhaps they didn't realize they had available to offer yeah I mean, we're a national we're a national um, enterprise and financial education charity we're part of junior achievement network which is over 100 countries across the globe which are committed to entrepreneurship uh, work readiness and financial education. Um, so our vision in the in the UK is that every young person uh, should have access to the opportunity to develop those vital skills in which to learn to earn and manage their money. So it's enterprise and financial mm. together. Build that enterprising mindset because remember, mindset is just as important as skills because you need the mindset in order to apply those skills and then make that positive contribution to your community and the wider society. Um, we were founded in 1962, so uh, we'll be 60 years old um, in a couple of years' time. And, uh, and over that time, 4.5 million young people have, uh, have benefited from our programme. So um, to our listeners out there, you know, if you're a Young Enterprise alumni, then I would love to hear from you in terms of connecting with the alumni network, because part of the story is hearing mm. of long term impact staying connected I think to who went before you and what you can learn from and the power of mentorship I imagine the more that you can access that the better absolutely and it's the long-term benefit you know you'll hear the likes of Steph McGovern who is a is a great young enterprise alumna alumna you know talking about the impact that it had on her career and her ability to kind of get into telly and um you know and it's it's great to hear you know another another example is Sarah John who's the chief cashier of the Bank of England so her signature I think is on the new 20 pound note I think it's a new 20 pound note and she talked about you know young enterprise alumni so part of this would be setting up and running your own company and she was the finance director within that company so that was her first taste of being the finance director and applying the skills 
within that setting. So it gives you that sense, really, that real sense of, of a role and applying those skills within a real world setting. And hopefully that then helps young people to prepare themselves for the world of work, not always setting up a business. It might be being really entrepreneurial within someone else's business. And that preparation for the world of work. And I'm a great believer that you can lead from wherever you are in an organisation. What are the key aspects? You talked about skills and mindsets. What would you say are the most important leadership skills and mindset attributes that you're trying to communicate to young people through Young Enterprise? I mean, I think that that enterprising mindset is really, really important. The ability to be able to learn through experience, to be able to apply your learning through experience, really neutralising and normalising the word failure and, uh, mm. and, and making it a bit more value add that failure is absolutely a part and parcel of innovation and iteration. And innovation is never usually one blinding lightning thing that happens it's a it's a it's an onward iteration and it's helping young people to to understand that failure is part and parcel of an enterprising mindset um and and leadership really i think you know i've kind of really seen a, a, a steep shift in in leadership i think and i think we're moving very strongly away from that coercive command and control and really that kind of fellowship and leadership within organisations is a lot more fluid because you will have people who are subject experts or they know that a part of the new terrain that somebody in a position of leadership might not know. And that's certainly within our organisation, the Young Enterprise. So we're really working hard on developing a culture where people can be fluid and feel like if they've got a, a point of expertise or if they've got a something that is worth saying or worth sharing that we open we hold a space for that and that it's less about the badge on your um or your business card it's more about what you bring creating that culture creating the conditions for that for people to be heard you you described it as holding the space it's one of those things I think that we hear phrases like that and, and we can assume therefore that it's easy to do and it and it isn't. <laughs> so what, what are the ingredients of that or some of the ingredients of that that you could share with our leaders? How do you create and hold the space? For me, I, I think it's really hard. Um, and to be, you know, to kind of really, really have it as front of mind you have to you have to it's an onward practice I think particularly in a world of uncertainty because in a world of uncertainty you want to have a position to hold on to so holding a space kind of goes into what I'm gonna my letter to my letter my leadership letter but holding that space means that you have to you have to live in in an uncomfortable space which Mm -hmm. is about not knowing and being okay and not shutting because very often you want to shut down that door of Let's find an answer. Let's get it done or crack on because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel more in control in a world in a maelstrom of, you know, chaos. It makes us feel better to have a decision made. We get on into execution and away we go. But really, in being able to hold that space, you might well find a much better quality of decision just by holding that space a little bit longer you get a little bit more data, you get a little bit more kind of influence, you chew around some options. And my experience is, although it is incredibly uncomfortable sometimes, that holding space is well worth it because the quality of decisions and the quality of direction is very often for the better. 
And you know, you mentioned earlier, Sharon, the um, some of the physical things that go on for you. Is that ever part of that holding the space? And how do you, when the temptation is to do what you've described and make a decision or you know, create a sense of done, so that we all feel better about having done something? How do you personally slow yourself down when that temptation is strong? I think some of it's about that intentionality, isn't it? It's about setting your expectation. And I think sometimes if you're within, I mean, I'm I'm not saying I do this all the time because my team will listen to this and go, she doesn't always do that. And that that would absolutely be the truth. But I think sometimes if you're able almost to be a little bit more, be accountable to your team to say, look, you know, we'll have this conversation. It's not going to be an easy conversation. I don't think there are any easy answers here. Let's have 15 or 20 minutes just thinking about what those options might be. And I guess making sure that everybody has a space. And one of the hardest things to do, I think, within a virtual meeting is silence. And holding silence within a virtual meeting is, is pretty hard. You know, 20 seconds can feel like a lifetime. But sometimes that's that's what's needed to, to kind of move a conversation on and, and not feel like as the leader, you have to go in and rescue. I mean, I'm learning that mm. very often. You feeling you're the rescuer very often is shutting a door that just had it been left open for a little bit longer would have led to perhaps an insight that we just didn't, we, we just, you know, a gift or something new that we, we haven't expected to have. I'm wrecking my brains to remember where I heard it and I can't remember where I heard it. There was a phrase I heard once called that was let the silence do the heavy lifting. Oh, absolutely. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard that before. So it's that sounds really it's hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think makes it easier is exactly what you've described, which is what I call having the conversation about the conversation. So the meeting begins with not so much what are we going to talk about, not least because then we're going to end up diving in, but the how are we going to talk about it? And let's flag that we're going to have some silences and we're all going to, however uncomfortable we might be, we're going to honour those silences and do some thinking in them. You know, to have a bit more talk about how, yeah. particularly when we're doing things in a different way, can really transform the quality of the conversation that you then have. I think you're absolutely right. And I think if you can, I mean, again, it kind of leads to the, to the, to the leadership letter conversation, but, you know, the, there's a I think it's Carl Jung that developed this holding the tension between spaces and kind of if you can let your team, I guess, understand that, you know, there's more than two positions here. And rather than holding on to those one or two positions, it's about looking at the validity of both of those to see if there's a third space that might might emerge. And I think in this situation that we're in right now, it's even more important because again, you've got this external environment that's so uncertain and people in that uncertainty want to find something that's home for them, that they can anchor, that will make them feel better, or they'll have more control. You know, that doesn't always get us to a better place. It just gets a bit dogmatic and a bit, it's flawed in lots and lots of ways, I think. Well, and as you said it, I, I, what went through my head was this really strong image of a, you know, a ship in a storm putting its anchor down and actually what it ends up doing is staying in the storm rather than. Yeah, it's a, it's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. And sometimes, you know, the, the ship might not make it through the storm because it's kind of anchored itself in a, in a really bad place when mm. it might be better just flowing through and coming out the other side. It might be a bit different, might look a bit different, but it's not always a bad thing, is it? I, uh, yeah, I agree. Sharon, I'm, con- I'm conscious this is a, perhaps a little bit of a divergence, but there's, 
this, I don't know why it came up, but there was something you just said. So my experience of young enterprise as a teacher was that there, it involved a lot of volunteers. Yeah. Um, maybe it's all the people that work on the ship that it's got me thinking about this. Yeah. I'm assuming that's still the case. And I'm curious about how as, as leaders in an organisation that relies on volunteers, that can be a difficult line to walk, I think, sometimes. You know, when people are giving their time and their experience and their expertise, how do you navigate the, I guess, the gratitude for that yeah. with, with the having high expectations because I, I think there's something for for all of us for all leaders in any kind of organization to learn from what I think is a real challenge which is navigating the gratitude and the expectation yeah I mean I, I my background is youth work it's youth and community work so I kind of um came to this w- with this sense of actually if you engage people in something that's that they believe in then actually you move away from that, you're doing this for us, it's a favour for us. You get people who are incredibly committed because they there is something, they get something out of it. And whilst you are incredibly grateful, and I think it's really important to find ways of recognising volunteers, there is also a sense of that we're on a, we've got a shared vision and a shared movement here that we want to make a difference by offering meaningful opportunities to young people that in in most cases, those volunteers will have seen firsthand can and do change futures. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more about creating a shared movement, which is that people understand the importance of investing in that future. And they understand and they've seen firsthand where young people have, you know, been invested in, they have firsthand gained the knowledge, experience and the skills because of that volunteers intervention. So you're right, it's a careful balance some of it, I mean, some, some of it's about consistency and being very clear about what it is. And if it isn't something that a volunteer wants to engage in, that's fine. Mm. So I think you have to be quite clear from the outset, really, about what it is that you're asking someone to do. It's amazing how often we're not as clear as we think we're being about what we're asking someone to do. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's Brady Brown, isn't it, that says clear is kind and uh, yes. unclear is unkind. I love that quote I love that concept I think it's so helpful to so many people because we often do think we're being kind by holding back and you know softening or as you used the word rescuing earlier when actually some temporary discomfort in order to really truly know the truth of what's going on because then you can do something with it Mm. is much kinder than to withhold you know kinder to take care of how you deliver the information than to not give it yes absolutely for sure. So there's there's so much I want to ask you, Sharon, but I know that I know that a lot will come from hearing your letter. So Sharon, who is your letter to? And we'd love to hear who it's to and why you wrote it, and then dive on into sharing the letter with us, please. Sure, Lizzie. My 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 letter's to Barack Obama, who I have been a massive fan of uh, his journey. Dear Mr. President, I'm writing this letter partway through reading your latest book, The Promised Land. I became inspired by your journey back in 2007 as I followed your first presidential campaign. I learned how early in your career as a community organiser in the neighbourhoods of South Side of Chicago, you developed an ability to, in your own words, see the paradoxes, the ambiguities, the grey areas, the absurdity sometimes of life, but not to be paralysed by them to listen and really listen to understand people's stories, the context to which they were processing the world and then check you truly understood what you'd heard. This approach inspired a coalition and ultimately, well, in my view at least, 
contributed to over 69 million people feeling seen and heard to vote for you to become the 44th President of the United States. Throughout my own journey as a youth and community worker in Merseyside during the early to mid-90s, I can attest to the power of listening to and engaging communities. This approach increased the chance of solutions becoming embedded within communities because challenges were understood from a number of viewpoints and the testing of solutions took place with rather than on people. Your own path has continued to inspire my journey to this day. Your courage to take unpopular decisions, to communicate openly with American people and the world, sharing both the rationale for and the workings out behind those decisions, for your humility in always seeking the best minds to lead into huge challenges. Challenges that, again, in your own words, often do not have perfect answers because if they had been available, someone else would have found them much earlier on. You've also taught me that just because something doesn't have a perfect answer, it doesn't mean it can't have a better answer, which is why you hold great store in a combination of good data and seeking counsel from subject experts to inform the quality of your decision making processes. Perhaps the greatest lesson you've taught me has particular relevance within our current COVID environment. Brenny Brown interviewed you recently in her brilliant Dare to Lead podcast, and she coined it beautifully when she described your ability to hold the tension of opposites. Brené identifies this as a rare leadership skill set because it requires a level of comfort with ambiguity. As a social researcher, she states a belief that people can hold the discomfort of paradox as truly the most transformative leaders amongst us, forcing transformation through finding or creating a third space by not getting trapped in dogma of an either or perspective, but what it might transcend from an approach that understands both perspectives. As I write, we've just received confirmation of the new COVID-19 tier systems from the UK government together with the planned education measures and your ability to hold the tension of opposites is not lost on me here. It's enabled me to better comprehend the increased complexities involved in navigating through this COVID situation. Should schools stay open and if they close to reduce transmission levels, how do we safeguard the education of young people who don't have digital access or the support to homeschool? For me as an education charity leader, this has even more relevancy because we are living in times with a prevailing narrative that describes young people living through COVID as the lost, failed COVID generation. And this effectively serves to write off a whole generation's prospects because of the pandemic. And I feel strongly that language describing young people's futures as lost or failed serves only to disempower demotivate, dishearten and demoralise the very young people we are seeking to engage, energise and inspire. However, we must all recognise that the pandemic has compounded inequalities for many young people and, whilst at the, at the same time, being more proactive than ever in finding ways to tackle that by providing meaningful opportunities and support for young people, helping them to build their futures within the current environment that they find themselves in. Hope is a word that has resurfaced in recent weeks, which I'm truly grateful for, as it signals for me that we're turning the corner in our collective mindset. So in closing this letter, I'd like to thank you for sustaining my hope through some very difficult times and share an excerpt from one of your speeches that for me epitomises the fundamental role of hope in the current times that we live, learn and lead. I have always believed that hope is that stubborn thing inside us that insists despite all the evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us so long as we have the courage 
to keep reaching, to keep working, to keep fighting. Hope, hope in the face of difficulty, hope in the face of uncertainty, the audacity of hope. Thank you, Sharon. A brilliant letter. I, I, I did. I did warn you that it would get me a bit. What you said about what you said about young and it, and it is so important. I think what you said about the language, the narrative that we collectively already seem to be applying to the future for young people, in that we're not there yet. <laughs> you know, why, why are we describing this as failed and lost? It might well be hard. Well, the chances are it's going to be tough, and people don't fail through tough times they they do extraordinary things but I do I, I really hear you when you say let's take care about our language and our narrative here mm. what would you say to leaders listening to this leaders in any kind of organization what can we be doing now in the way that we speak in our decisions in the way that we act to have young people and their futures front of mind and and an account for what is happening for them, as well as the positives of what they'll bring to that. I think you're right that um, you know we 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 need to be careful that our own fears and our own kind of worries don't um, inadvertently uh, impact upon you know young people and and their hopes for the futures. I think that's that's really important that our, we don't get hung up. In, in our own fears and hopes because that's going to that's going to impact we know that I mean it's it's again it's about holding the tension isn't it it's we know we know that young people are disproportionately going to be impacted but we also know that meaningful opportunities appropriate support to develop those critical skills and mindset can and does change young people's futures so if you hold the fact that they will be disproportionately impacted by the very nature of what's happening but we're also mindful about how we create those meaningful opportunities and we can do that there are opportunities there are new industries that are thriving in the current situation there are third ways that are emerging you know just today i read on social media that the the, the bbc are going to be airing some some uh, some lessons on tv for young people who don't have access to to, to broadband so they're actually going to you know use education on on television so people will find third ways so i think it's about creating that culture be mindful that the young people that that we have the privilege of working with around us are extraordinarily resourceful they have shown a resilience i hate to use that word because i think it's an overused word but they've shown real resourcefulness mm. and ability to adapt more than most of our generations so, you know, credit where it's due, you know, real credit where it's due. You know, if they were going to sit in front of an employer and talk about a time that they have, I mean, you know, they'll be able to count n numerous times where they've been adaptable or resourceful or resilient. And so it's about cultivating that. And it's helping them develop that self-confidence to be able to apply that into a future setting. What a fantastically talented generation that we have working with that we need to be nurturing amongst, you know, above all else, really. It's not hard to point out to somebody what they're doing well, that they might not even have realised they're doing mm. well, but we forget to do it. Yeah. And, and I imagine, and I, I am imagining it, I don't know what it's like to be at that age in, in, in this time, but I do imagine that it must be even harder to recognise the skills and strengths that you have demonstrated if the narrative around us is one of you know what of disaster 
And it's and hearing you talk as well, I'm really interested. I want I wonder what in five years time, ten years time, what are we looking for our leaders to remember mm. about this time, so that we can look back on it in in the way that you've described as a time of great challenge, but also of a time that led to all the third way, the fourth way, fifth way, sixth way, and and led to a generation of leaders who think in really different ways. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I think the role of empathy is a real navigation tool, really, because just to be able to understand someone's perspective, understand, uh, it goes back to Barack Obama and that community organising, to really listen, really listen to someone's perspective and that someone feels heard. I think it kind of brings people into the room. It brings people into the room to like solve or find ways forward. And I, th- and I think unless we bring people metaphorically into the room when it comes to like a post-COVID recovery, whether that's the economy, communities or whatever, you know, we're not, we're not going to make the moves forward that we need to make, particularly post-Brexit. So those, you know, kind of being, bringing people to the room, you know, we've got incredibly resourceful but underserved communities that we just don't spend enough time talking with to, to find ways forward. So I think empathy has got a massive, massive, massive role um, understanding that leadership's not a right, it's not a badge, um, that actually anybody can have that role. It's an action, you know, it's an action that regardless of your role, you can undertake. And I think the more that we can bring that into organisations, the better. I think we, you know, we'll innovate better, we'll, in, we'll iterate better. Listening is another one of those skills, isn't it? That because we all do it all the time, mm-hmm. it's easy to assume we're doing it well. <laughs> And there's in what you've just described, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that difference between listening to somebody. And I guess in the same way as we talked about with, the, you know, with that, you know, what's the with meetings, what's the intention you set for your listening yeah. before you go in there? You know, how are you taking responsibility, not just for what you're about to hear, but for the way you choose to hear it so that you can do something useful with it? And if you go back to that kind of holding attention, you know, really listening without preparing your response. Yes. To really, really listen, you have to like abandon that safety of, well, I'm going to say this next and it's going to be really good and my response is going to be X. You have to be, to be really present, you have to abandon that and be ready to receive what it is that person's going to say. And that could go, that could take the conversation anywhere. But that's really listening, isn't it? That's being truly, truly present in a, in a situation. Yeah. And I think we do see too much. Of the, well, I'm saying we see too much of it. I'm, I'm thinking TV wise. <laughs> but, you know, we are, there, there does seem to be an increasing culture of interview about being exactly that, being taking it in turns to speak and waiting to speak. Yeah. Rather than really, truly listening and following the direction of the conversation. I think you're right. And, I, you know, it's probably something controversial I'm going to say here, but I think some of that is about protecting a personal brand. Right. Um, I think it's, you know, I think there's, there's something there, isn't there, about, you know, kind of, you know, defending your position or protecting. And I think, you know, if we move away from leadership being a position and one where it's much more of an action, uh, you know, and some of the some of the skills being having the vulnerability to say you don't know something or having the humility to say well, actually I got that wrong um involves you know some risk to the personal brand doesn't it you know it's not always not you're not always going to come out looking or feeling great but you know if mastery is the pursuit if you're if it's an ongoing art that you're learning you truly are learning all the time then there's no end point is there so it doesn't really matter about personal brand it's an ongoing mastery isn't it it's um 
think Bernie Brown had a, another recent podcast and she's talking about what's the difference between success and mastery. Well, success has an end point or a, you want to get to this point, whereas mastery is this ongoing learning. And I think, you know, when you think about leadership, it is ongoing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's infinite. And for that very reason, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> and we are, we are out of time, Sharon, but Mastery is ongoing learning and the difference between the continuing pursuit of mastery versus the finite tick of success feels like a a really powerful thought to leave our listeners with. So thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Leadership Letters. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you. You're listening to the Leadership Letters podcast, a reflection of all things leadership. And it's time now for the Leadership Letters Lowdown. And this month, things are slightly different in that usually I write my letter first and the podcast is recorded a bit later in the month. But January is doing its thing and I'll be writing the letter post-podcast recording. So this is a really nice opportunity to connect those two things in a different way. So on this Leadership Letters Lowdown, I'm going to pick up on a couple of the things that Sharon and I have just been talking about. And the first is that conversation about the conversation. So when we sit down for a conversation or a meeting, getting into the agenda, talking about what's on the list of things to be done or discussed or downloaded, it's tempting at the best of times to dive on in. It's even more tempting under pressure and it's even more tempting on a virtual call. So a tip is to resist that temptation and take some time whilst bearing in mind what you're going to be talking about, to also agree how you are going to have this conversation. How are you going to make sure you hear from everyone you need to? How will you ensure that in service of where you are headed, all views are welcomed? How will you ensure you don't waste time with repetition whilst still enabling people to signal their agreement? How will you check how everyone is? And what, if any, is the time boundary for that? What's the agreement for interruptions from pets, children or unstable internet connection? Who's going to take care of timing and be clear that they're fully supported and expected to hold you to all all to account for that timing and flag that? And as Sharon mentioned, how will you ensure there is thinking time and that space and silence for thinking are welcome? These and many more how will we have this conversation questions can increase connection help create a safe, purposeful atmosphere and ultimately save the time invested and more by avoiding repetition or rushing, both of which ultimately lose you time in the long run. Something else Sharon talked about so beautifully in her letter and that I should flag, I find myself feeling pretty strongly about often, is our use of language. What are we saying to ourselves and to each other? And what in saying that are we doing in predicting the future in ways that are unhelpful to ourselves and others? And as Sharon said, this isn't about ducking the reality. It's about saying with that reality in mind, what can we do to prepare ourselves and each other for the future? What's a more helpful way of looking at and describing that future? What's most helpful to someone else right now? And to hear that it's going to be difficult when they already know that or to point that out to them in case they hadn't realised it for themselves isn't necessarily the most helpful thing. They also might not have realised for themselves what strengths and skills 
you have observed in them in recent times. So if you listened before, you probably know that I love a quote and a few come to mind here. Energy flows where thoughts go and that famous Henry Ford quote, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And this isn't about relentless and inappropriate positivity. Positivity is great, but it can become alienating if it doesn't also hear and account for reality. It's about saying, what is the most useful description of the future? What are the most useful words I can choose in the here and now, as well as to describe that future, that help our energy go where we most need it, towards possibility, towards solution, towards support, towards strengths that have been demonstrated? And my to watch recommendation this month is one I actually did offer at this time last year too, and it's connected to the power of words. If you watched it then, I'm going to dare to say watch it again. I've watched it many times and I think every time I watch it, I get something different from it. And it's a great moment in the year to think about the most important word from last year and the most important word for you for next year. It's a TEDx talk by the brilliant Sarah Salway and it's called In Praise of Everyday Words. So I'll pop a link to it and anything else that gets a mention in the podcast notes and you'll be able to find those on the website too. So if you haven't seen this talk before, it's great. Give it a watch and maybe let me know what the word you are choosing for 2021 is. I did wonder what on earth the OED word of the year would have been for a year like 2020. I struggled when I was thinking to settle on the word. In the end, I forced myself to choose one and I chose the word steep, a reflection of many learning curves, I think. And when I went on their website, actually, I realised that they'd had the same struggle and they said it became apparent that 2020 is not a year that could neatly be accommodated in one single word of the year. So some fascinating stuff to read there too. Words are so interesting and so powerful. And my goodness, as leaders, we see the impact of the ones we choose to use with ourselves and the ones we choose to use with others. So a great opportunity to reflect as we begin this year on the words we choose. So next up is a cheat in that I'm going to go with two to watch recommendations this month. And my second to watch recommendation is to lighten the tone, watch something funny. And there's a good reason for it. I've been working on an assignment for a course I'm on at the moment, and that um, pretty much dominated the time between Christmas and New Year for me. And one of the things that involved was testing out two positive psychological interventions, which is a bit of a mouthful. But in other words, two exercises that have been proven through research to increase our sense of well-being. So one of the ones I chose was called Three Funny Things, and it involved noting at the end of each day three funny things that had happened that day and how they'd come about. It's an extension of an exercise you may well have come across of writing down three good things that have happened each day. Now, the truth is, without going into too much detail, that this exercise and doing this exercise in preparation for the write-up landed in a week where I really couldn't see myself finding much funny at all for many reasons, both in the wider world and in my own life. So I have to say I was really quite taken aback in a good way by the impact that it had. And I think this was partly because in the act of noticing and writing these three things, funny things down each day, I was noticing more humorous moments and noticing that they were there, even when overall it might have felt like they weren't. 
And I was also probably, I think, trying to create them too, so that I had something to write about. But mainly, though, what happened when I wrote about those funny moments was I delved into all sorts of reminders of good and useful and positive things that went back a long way in a way that I just hadn't expected to. Um, Relationships, history, achievements, all sorts of stuff that has been useful to me came up from reflecting on simply on the surface something that was funny. So I offer it as an exercise to have a go at maybe if as we begin the year and the way it's begun, a, a bit of a well-being boost might be useful. And if that whole exercise doesn't take your fancy, let's just stick with a to-watch recommendation of taking a break from it all by watching something funny. Um, please do send me your recommendations because we're all limited in the number of things that we can find on iPlayer, Netflix and co. But the one that I'm watching at the moment, which is getting me properly giggling, you'll find it on BBC iPlayer and it's called Ghosts. Give yourselves a break from the world and watch a bit of silliness. Finally, then there's a to listen to recommendation. It's Brené again. Sharon recommended the Unlocking Us podcast that Brené Brown interviewed Barack Obama. It's a great listen, especially on that holding the tension of opposites that Sharon spoke about. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that if you tune into it or any of the Unlocking Us podcast. They're all really useful ones to get some ideas from. So until next time, you can find and sign up for the written version of the leadership letters at thecauseway.com, where we'd also love you to share your words, your recommendations, and indeed your own leadership letters. We'd love to hear from you. And if you feel inclined to pop a subscribe or like wherever you've downloaded this podcast, that would be great too. Thank you for joining us. My thanks again to Sharon Davis for her brilliant letter and the great conversation we've had at the beginning of today's episode. And I look forward to seeing you in February. Take care until then. This is the Leadership Letters podcast, a reflection of all things leadership. See you soon.